You are listening to National Security Law Today. Thanks for joining us on National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm one of your hosts, Nicole. I'm Yvette. Hey, and I'm Elisa. If you hadn't had a chance yet, go back and listen to part one of our conversation with Air Force Colonel retired Julie Hugan from last week. Or if you're the kind of resist authority, you can check out Julie's bio on our webpage and we'll jump right into some substantive legal topics. Welcome back, Julie. Thank you. It's like I never left. All right. In a a few podcasts ago, we were talking about how we targeted, meaning the United States targeted, Iranian General Qassem Soleimani. And there was uh, a legal theory that was used by the president to justify the use of force in that case. And we talked about the 2001 and 2002 authorization for the use of military force, or AUMFs. Uh, But we didn't really get into the history of that particular provision or provisions. So help us understand uh, what those were for and what the legal bases that were that we used to enter into Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, um, I think, first of all, it's it's easily forgotten now that we're sitting in uh, 2020, how different, not just in time, but also in reasoning, legal reasoning, why we started bombing targets in Afghanistan in 2001 versus why we invaded Iraq in 2003. Um, those were two very different operations and not just in name. Um, of course, there was September 11th, and that is really what resulted in Congress writing that barely two-page 2001 AUMF. And that was not only a summary, but it was the only kind of laying out, at least that early on, in terms of why the United States, along with our ally, the United Kingdom, began engaging in a bombing operation uh, against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and against uh, their known support coming out of the Taliban, which at the time was uh, the... Um, essentially only recognized national governmental structure, even though it's one could argue how, how much structure there was in the mm. Taliban at any given point in time. But they were only the national government structure in Afghanistan at the time. And they were providing support to al-Qaeda, who had a significant presence in Afghanistan. Um, so that's what kicked off op- what we call in the United States uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. Not long after that, you had NATO involvement, really uh, by citing Article 5 of the NATO uh, Convention or the NATO Treaty, and Article 5 is essentially the self-defense provision of the NATO Treaty, where all of the signatories to uh, the NATO Treaty, meaning all of the members of NATO, agree that if Article 5 is invoked, it is invoked in order to defend one of their members. And when Article 5 was invoked uh, in order to help the United States, which had been attacked on 9-11, that was the first invocation of Article 5, the self-defense provision, by NATO as a group. That led eventually to the establishment of the International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF. Um, ISAF, while uh, it evolved pretty quickly into a non-Article 5 mission of NATO, meaning that it wasn't there uh, to continue to 
uh, assert the defense of the United States. It was really there in order to be the other half of what was the U.S.-U.K. mission and Operation Enduring Freedom. So the U.S.-U.K. mission, really the U.S. mission, largely driven by the U.S. mission and Operation Enduring Freedom, was to eliminate elements of al-Qaeda and the Taliban supporting uh, elements in Afghanistan. So clearly from the get-go with the bombing that began in October 2001, it was a combat mission. The NATO mission for ISAF was to help the interim government of Afghanistan, which most people associate now with Hamid Karzai because he was the leader of the interim or transitional government in Afghanistan, um, to establish a national government and to establish rule of law at the local level across Afghanistan, assuming that or I guess to say that at that point, because the Taliban had lost uh, power and the ability to assert any kind of authority in a formal political or governmental structure in Afghanistan. Um, Compare that dramatically (laughs) with the 2002 authorization for the use of military force against Iraq, um, which was a almost five-page document three pages of which went to Congress trying to explain why we were going to evade Iraq, which is what we did in 2003. There are lots of varied reasons in those three pages, but the primary one that comes out of that, which is probably most memorable in terms of how it was articulated uh, by Secretary Powell when he appeared before the UN Security Council to explain why the US was preparing a coalition to invade Iraq, was the threat of um, weapons of mass destruction. Yellow cake, I remember. Yes, yellow cake uranium, because um, the argument went that President Hussein was stockpiling chemical and biological weapons in contradiction of treaties that uh, he and Iraq had signed in terms of uh, the control and non-proliferation and non-creation and stockpiling of chemical and biological weapons. And people pointed, of course, to President Hussein's previous employment of chemical and biological weapons against uh, his own people. And also, just as importantly, if not more importantly, that Iraq was, under President Hussein's leadership, was continuing to advance their nuclear production capabilities. Um, And secondarily, there was an al-Qaeda reason that was given in terms of why the U.S. and the U.S.-led coalition was going to invade Iraq, which, in fact, we did in 2003. Eventually, uh, it was determined um, that there was no evidence of either. There was no evidence of uh, both the WMD threat, uh, President Hussein was alleged to have been uh, presenting, including any ramping up of a nuclear production capability. And there was also no evidence developed that al-Qaeda was receiving support uh, from the Iraqi government, either officially or unofficially. Um, Regardless, in 2003 at the time, not knowing what we would eventually know, uh, the U.S.-led coalition did engage in in Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, and invade Iraq in 2003. Um, And uh, U.S. combat forces were not withdrawn from Iraq until 2011. 
So setting aside what we eventually learned about the stated reasons for invading Iraq, once we've established the lawful justifications to conduct combat operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, does the JAG's job end there? Absolutely not. In fact, the JAG's job, uh, whatever level of operations, military operations that JAG is operating at, um, really is just beginning at that point once the U.S. Uh, decides for strategic and policy reasons to engage in military operations uh, in a foreign country. Um, quick, uh, I guess, primer, not even a primer, because I'm not going to talk about it that much, but from the military perspective, uh, when we talk about military operations, we're including the fact that we view them occurring at three levels. Uh, so the strategic level, which is usually at the national level in terms of what the strategy is for engaging in military operations, the operation operational level, which will oversee an operation. So when I say Operation Iraqi Freedom, I'm referring to all of the U.S.-led coalition's operations in the country, across the country of Iraq. Um, and then we talk about engaging in military operations at the tactical level, which is really a unit level um, in terms of a particular maybe geographic location or a particular task that a military unit is given. Uh, my experience as a jet, as an Air Force JAG came primarily at the operational level and at the tactical level. Um, so most of what I'm about to say in terms of how I view the JAG's role is based on those two things. Um, so when we talk about military operations and the fact that there are are JAGs embedded at really every level of military operations. That includes combat operations, where the JAGs are involved in terms of interpreting uh, the law, the policy, the directives that initiated that combat operations to ensure that those combat operations are uh, basically doing what they were intended to do by the commander-in-chief and the higher levels of command. Um, we are also at that point, in terms of the JAGs, ensuring that the legal advice that we're providing, uh, that, that those military operations are being conducted in accordance with law, policy, regulation, and orders. And that's where you get into questions of how the United States uh, applies things like the law of war, also known as the law of armed conflict, and as categorized by the International Committee for the Red Cross, international humanitarian law. All right. So, but at some point, um, leaving all that behind, and there are just layers and layers of things to discuss here. We can't wait too much for any one podcast. How do we get to the targeting of General Soleimani? Well, I think we really don't if you're talking about beginning with the discussion of the 2001 and then the 2002 AUMFs because the as I mentioned, U.S. forces were withdrawn, combat forces were withdrawn from Iraq uh, in 2011. Our presence of U.S. military forces in Iraq since then is very much based on what the Iraqi government has agreed and decided to let us do in terms of a presence in Iraq. So the 2002 AUMF against Iraq really has no play um, or very little play in terms of justifying why currently in 2020 that uh, U.S. military forces are present in Iraq. Um, as a result, when you look at the targeting of General Soleimani, um, what you are looking at is especially when it comes to the justifications that both the President and the Secretary of State, as well as the Secretary of Defense, have discussed uh, since the action 
became known or was announced is much more citations to general propositions of the law of war or the law of armed conflict, depending on how any one person wants to talk about it. And that includes the notions of self-defense and the principles that the U.S. forces apply when we engage in military operations anywhere in the world. So, but the president was criticized for saying things like he would torture terrorist suspects or target their families. And then what happened was after the killing of General Soleimani, um, he said he would target Iranian cultural sites. Um, what, is, what law does this implicate? So this very much is the continuing implication of the law of war over law and from conflict, as well as international humanitarian law. And I think, uh, as the uh, was mentioned in the previous podcast, um, the sources of law, when you talk about that, are primarily, or at least in their uh, genesis, the pre-World War II Hague Conventions and the post-World War II Geneva Conventions. And in the previous podcast, there was discussion about which conventions and which international treaties the U.S. has or has not signed up to. And I think what you could take, uh, even if you just look at the Department of Defense Law of War Manual, which was uh, last up- updated just a couple of years ago, actually, in a major update or major rewrite, um, is that The United States, whether or not we've signed up for any of the individual treaties or conventions, once a principle or a legal theory has been accepted as customary international law, the United States in policy and regulation, um, if not in law, has agreed to abide by those principles. Um, And so when you look at the Hague and the Geneva Conventions that talk about what constitutes lawful or unlawful targets, uh, that's where you get into um, customary international law and the fact that U.S. has for years, for decades really, um, said that they will abide by those. So if, hypothetically, a service member were to receive an unlawful order, what recourse does that person have? And is the fact that it was a directive from the president a defense if they were to come um, before a court-martial? Well, to take your second question first, uh, is, there, is it a defense to say that I received the order from a superior officer? And, of course, the president, as commander-in-chief, is the most, the highest uh, authority uh, in the United States military is no, it is, it is, it is not a not even the, to say uh, I was obeying from lawyers. It, it is not a defense. And as I'm sure much of your audience knows, um, that all played out uh, uh, probably um, most publicly in the trial of Lieutenant Callie after the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Uh, Lieutenant Calley cited as his primary defense that he was following the order of his superior officer um, to do what he did in uh, Vietnam in that My Lai Valley incident. Um, but no, we know we have known since then, and we have known in other cases where people attempted to use a defense that they received an order from a superior officer that that is not a sufficient defense if it is an unlawful order. Um, In terms of recourse, I think that uh, there always has to be a precursor discussion as to what constitutes orders in the military, the presumption that orders are lawful in the military, and how we assess whether or not there's an unlawful order. I think in terms of a recourse, if a military, especially officer, let's say, receives an order that that officer believes is unlawful, Um, And where is your duty to disobey it 
um, to obey another directive that you have that compels disobedience of that unlawful order and how exactly one does that and the implications of doing that. I think the most recent discussion that I think can be informative to answer your question, which um, I won't do right now because it's probably a much bigger discussion, is if folks look at the congressional testimony of the then Judge Advocates General of all of the services in 2006, um, with, of course, one of those TJAGs being uh, then Air Force Lieutenant General Jack Rives, who is now Executive Director of the American Bar Association. (laughs) I know, his name might ring a bell to folks in this building. Um, I think that was a very interesting discussion, not just because the TJAGs uh, were giving their uh, legal opinion about um, the Supreme Court's then recent decision in Hamden v. Rumsfeld, as well as the implications for the military, as well as the military justifications for um, providing detention facilities and basically running detention facilities at Guantanamo Bay and the commission's process that was associated or is still associated with detention at Guantanamo Bay. I think folks would also be... um, well informed if they listen to the discussion of torture and how the TJAGs discussed torture in that congressional testimony and they might want to think about the fact that when it comes to the torture that um, as some would characterize it as torture that United States officials engaged in post 9-11 and prior to that 2006 testimony they might want to consider why it was that military members were not involved in it. Wow. On that note. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Julie. Julie, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. Absolutely, and thanks for having me today. I hope uh, and definitely encourage your uh, listeners to uh, use the links that I know you guys will provide as part of this podcast um, for folks to be able to explore more deeply into the topics we touched on today. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. You can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles uh, on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes of this podcast. We will be back next week with new topics in national security. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or go to Twitter and follow us at ABA NatSec. We're also on Facebook and we welcome your feedback. And we'll close with our usual reminder that the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. See you next time on National Security Law Today. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.